0: All
1: right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books and Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring you another live interview that I did recently, this time with Dr. Edward Vickers, Professor of Comparative Education at Kyushu University, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Ed- All right, welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books and Education... This is your host, Ryan Allen, and today I'm excited to bring you another live interview that I did recently, this time with Dr. Edward Vickers, Professor of Comparative Education at Kyushu University, and we're going to be talking about his new book, Education and Society in Post-Mao China. He co-authored this book with Xiaodong Zeng, Professor at Beijing Normal University, and actually Beijing Normal University is where Dr. Vickers and I met. We were at a conference on education. And it was really great to hear his research. And then after the conference, we got together and interviewed uh, live for this book. So I think it's a a special occasion where we can actually be in in, in the same room uh, while doing the interview, which uh, may be sometimes rare on uh, this network since we're sort of getting authors from all over the world. So I think you're really going to enjoy this one. All right. Welcome, Dr. Vickers. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me. (laughs) Um, if we could, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Maybe your educational background, uh, okay. or sort of what, what you're doing right now. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, uh, at the moment, I'm a professor of comparative education at Kyushu University in Japan, and I've been there for the last five years. But um, of course, the the book we're talking about is on China, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I spent about 12 years living and working in China. Uh, most of that time in Hong Kong. Uh, I was originally a school teacher there. Uh, but I spent uh, three years living in Beijing uh, where I was working for the People's Education Press, oh, very uh, nice. helping them revise English textbooks, uh, yeah. during the big curriculum reform in the early 2000s. Oh, fantastic. Interesting.
1: And how did this project come together with uh, your co-author? Yeah. Uh,
0: well, um, Professor Zhang is a, a professor here at Beijing Normal University. Mm. I met her almost 10 years ago, uh, when we were involved in organizing a conference together. And, of course, 10 years ago was the 30th anniversary of Mm. Reform and Opening. So there was quite a lot of um, uh, stuff in the media here Mm -hmm. in China about um, the 30th anniversary and basically sort of celebrating the achievements of 30 years of Reform and Opening. Now we're coming up to 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Wow. (laughs) Wow. And she, in fact, uh, suggested to me that we might work together on putting uh, on, on writing a book that um, perhaps was 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 slightly less sort of celebratory, mm. uh, or, or sort, of, sort of simple-mindedly celebratory than some of the stuff that was coming out then. I see. Uh, certainly you know, here within China itself, uh, but that tried to um, construct uh, a coherent narrative also trajectory of uh, education's development in China since uh, the Mao. beginning of the Reform and Opening period. Yeah,
1: interesting. So it's it's sort of, it, it looks at post-Mao, but then also like Reform and Opening, like all of these things sort of happen. Well, post-Mao, effectively years Reform and right. Opening, I mean,
0: uh, there's a sort of hiatus of two yeah. years, but one of the interesting, uh, well, te- technically, Mao mm. dies in 1976, mm. Reform and Opening is officially launched in right. 1978. But the interesting thing about education is that, in a sense, education actually pre-launched reform and opening. The first aspect, uh, I think, of the entire uh, social system, the range of social policy that was reformed was education. Um, Because, in a sense, the the central purpose of the Cultural Revolution uh, was to undermine the connection between cultural capital and... Right. Social and political yeah. power, ostensibly. Yeah. Right. Uh, and when um, Mao was off the scene and the uh, elites who'd been rusticated or sidelined came back into power mm-hmm. after 1976, their
1: first priority. Yeah, interesting. Uh, like, uh, really that, was well. it, that was the fir- first year they brought back the, the
0: Gaokao or the interest. Yes, entrance, exactly. Back. So and, uh, reform and opening technically began in 1978. Nineteen seventy-seven, mm. the Gaokao was relaunched, right, right, um, and, and various other sure. uh, education policies were. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, because, I mean, again,
1: I think it's it's good to think like, well, we often consider this like one-time seventy-eight and all these other things, mm. but um, baby steps, I guess, can be something how we can describe.
0: Well, in a sense, educational reforms were the easy bit mm. uh, to, to to sort of get past the the, uh, various factions within the Communist Party. Mm -hmm. These were something that they could pretty much all unite around. Right. Uh, Largely, of course, because established elites within the party could see that, uh, if you want to be cynical, that that they had a vested interest in it. Mm. Right, right. Um, But I think also because, to not be so cynical... (laughs) um, Um, many of them uh, realized that the cultural revolution had been hugely destructive, particularly of higher education right and uh, from done on down saw the reconstruction of higher education and the reconstruction yeah. of a, uh, educational institutions directed towards an elite mm. as a priority right then how, how much then was there a separation from from
1: 78 or, or post-Mal with, with the other, with basic education and secondary. I mean, was that as was a sharp? I mean, you just said, like, higher education was definitely, but how about with uh,
0: the, other, the other? Well, range? I mean, to put it very simply, the, 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 the difference between uh, the early reform and opening period and oh. the Cultural Revolution in terms of education mm-hmm. is a difference. It, it's a swing from... Mm-hmm. Uh, a system and a set of policies that were heavily focused on promoting equality right. through education right. to a, an orientation that's very much more elitist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a radical yeah, swing school, of the pendulum, really, from one, one extreme to the other. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. So you the organization of the
1: book, you sort of have, you know, introduction, obviously, and then you go through early childhood, uh, different funding, ide- ideology, Uh, valuation, and then you sort of go into marketization, all these other other Mm -hmm. things. So I'm I'm curious, like, how how did you, or how how you and your co-author sort of think about these sort of areas as different from one another? Or how how did you create this sort of
0: organization? Well, I mean, the book starts off uh, by trying to set China's educational record in comparative context and Mm -hmm. also in historical context. Right. So the first sort of quarter of the book tries to construct... A narrative Mm -hmm. to give an overall picture of the sort of trajectory of education. I suppose primarily education policy in the post Mao period, and then we sort of break down the story into segments that look at different sectors or Mm -hmm. different themes, right? Um, Right. But the um, one one of the things that we felt that was missing from Mm. a lot of existing scholarship on Education in China mm-hmm. uh, in the contemporary period is, um, well, firstly, that kind of historical perspective. Mm. Uh, the, the, there are more edited volumes, for example, than you can say, shake a stick at, right. uh, looking at um, like a single sort of. Well, various issues or themes mm. related to education in China now. Right. Um, but There hasn't really been a book that's tried to um, uh, explain how the development of the education system overall Mm -hmm. uh, fits into the sort of broader story of China's post-Mao development, right? uh, and especially um, how the development of the education system has been conditioned by the politics Mm -hmm. of post-Mao China. Yeah. Interesting a lot of work on education tends to be, I don't know how to put this, um, uh, written from a rather sort of meliorist perspective. Mm. How do we make things better? Right. So maybe looking forward, I suppose, yeah. then sort of looking forward, perhaps, but also, yes, yes. Uh, but also what we call in the book a sort of practice oriented perspective. Sure. Okay. And a lot of the work on China, um, particularly until the early 21st century, Uh, certainly a lot of work in English has been somehow related to development project work. Mm. Uh, So a lot of researchers who come into China to do work on education have, um, in a sense, come in on the bandwagon of Mm. development aid agencies. Sure. Uh, And for understandable reasons, that kind of conditions or, the, the focus of right. a lot of this research, right. how do we make things better? Mm-hmm. Um, but what we felt a lot of research on education in China has not done is to consider, you know, how we define what better is or what better should be mm-hmm. in educational terms. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and, and what the purposes of education are mm-hmm. in a state like right. China. I mean, does the book struggle with that because there there
1: was within the cultural revolution of uh, maybe a kind of massification of mm-hmm. bringing people in from the countryside who maybe didn't have any sort of education mm-hmm. and raising literacy rates and these kinds of things. Does it does it look into sort of that dichotomy than all of the other uh, terrible things that are going on at the
0: same time? Well, what was education policy in the cultural revolution really about? I mean, I just said. You, you see a, a swing mm. from egalitarianism in right. the Cultural Revolution to elitism, put right. very crudely, right. in the post-Mao period. Uh, and that's a, a very important swing. Mm-hmm. And, and the elitism of policies from the early post-Mao period onwards right. has sort of helped to bake inequality into mm-hmm. Chinese society more broadly right. uh, in very important ways. But besides promoting egalitarianism, what was education policy in the cultural revolution about or other aspects of social sure. policy? It's ultimately about control. Mm. I think. Uh, and for Mao and the cultural revolutionary leadership, um, uh, an egalitarian education policy was largely about mobilizing the masses, mm-hmm. mobilizing the masses in support of the central leadership and bypassing the party. Right. And the party apparatus, mm-hmm. the party and state apparatus, yeah. in the process—that's um, particularly true in the early stages of yeah. the cultural revolution. But, but, but to a large extent, you know, that sort of orientation distinguishes mm-hmm. the cultural revolution from what came before, and right. particularly what came afterwards. Right. Um, but also, education policy in the post Mao period has also been very much about control. Um, I mean, what as I said just now we have to think about what kind of state China is. What what are the purposes of education in a state such as this? But it
1: seems more now or or since 78 or or post-Mao, it's embedding it within the party apparatus, whereas you're talking about before. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: the the party state effectively has been reconstructed Mm. in the post-Mao period. Right. And in the process in some ways turned to somewhat different purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, or at least um, as everybody knows, it's been focused very much on promoting economic growth. Mm-hmm. But is economic growth the ultimate purpose of the party state? Mm. Um perhaps not. I mean yeah. the, the purpose of a party state by its nature is the maintenance of control. Sure. Um And so I think when we look at the development of education in China, it's crucial to bear that in mind. And a lot of the existing literature, particularly if it's literature that's been uh, that's arisen out of research connected to development aid projects, is not Mm -hmm. going to look at those kinds of issues. So one of the things we're trying to do with this book is um, inject. Politics uh, I see. back into the narrative, or remind people of the relationships between uh, the politics of post Mao China and
1: strategies mm. for educational development. Sure. So one of the I think characteristics of Chinese education right now is highly competitive environment. Mm. Do you? And I, one of your chapters is marketization and, and competition. Mm. And so I'm wondering if you sort of can look in and or do you look in map. Sort of how that sort of grew and became like this pressure cooker uh, that we see right now.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we try to do that in that chapter, but also to to a large extent in other chapters of the book. I mean, this competition allied mm-hmm. to inequality, right, a- and also allied to to the to the imperative of control. I mean, this is a sort of equation, yeah, that runs throughout the book. Sure, sure, um, and. Uh, the point's been made by other scholars, not, not necessarily working in education, but in other fields, that, that in some respects you look at China, you look at some of the policy rhetoric, mm. um, you look at the government's use of marketization and competition, and this all looks quite neoliberal. Sure. Uh, the competition model. I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the regime here talks about socialism with Chinese characteristics, but uh, David Harvey has coined the phrase neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics. Mm. Mm. Um, and you can talk, certainly talk about neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics and um, look at how the regime in education, as in other areas, has used competition and used marketization to, um, in at certain times and in certain places, raise revenue mm, right. for education right. in ways that reduce the burden on the state. Sure. But also, um, you know, as we see in America, in Britain, you know, <laughs> competition, yeah. setting up a, up a competition is one way in which states seek to exercise control. Mm-hmm. So in universities, for example, uh, if you want to control academics, um, what do you do? You, you make research funding conditional on competitive a- applications mm-hmm. and um, reduce core funding. Right, right. Okay.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, we're sitting here at this, you know, in, in Beijing and we just kind came back from a conference and, and talking about these kinds of things. And I think especially now, not just thinking about domestic competition, but, and, and you talk about it at the back of your book mm-hmm. is the international competition that's mm-hmm. becoming a hallmark of, of Chinese higher education. So can you kind of talk about, kind of about that connection?
0: Well, of course, everybody knows if they know anything about Chinese education that um, you know Shanghai was topping the PISA uh, tables for um, uh, performance of fifteen-year-olds, right? At least until the latest round, when um, China sort of included more cities or provinces, mm-hmm. slipped down those rankings, but, right? Um, there are some scholars who who look at um, the Im- impact of neoliberalism on Chinese public policy making mm-hmm. who look at the importance that Chinese policymakers attach to these lead tables and say, well look, you know China is basically being influenced by these wider discourses mm-hmm. you know, out there in the world today about education, what education's for, educational right. competition and 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 China is sort of racing to catch up with the West. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, in a sense, you find some scholars arguing that that Chinese policymakers or Chinese educators have somehow been brainwashed or allowed themselves to be brainwashed into um, accepting that that sort of externally imposed paradigm for educational success. But actually, if you look at how... The state works within China mm-hmm. and how control is exercised. The Chinese state is a ranking state. Sure. Everything is ranked, right. everything is numbered. Yeah. Uh, control over officials of mm-hmm. all kinds at all levels right. is, is exercised largely through a ranking and scoring right. process. Right. Uh, control over teachers as a profession. Right. It works in much the same way. Teachers then <laughs> Uh, you know, within the schooling system are constantly testing and ranking right. students. Everyone, almost everything is right. tested and ranked all the time. Right. So when the OECD comes along with this testing and ranking system, well, that, that paradigm yeah. kind of, you know, it's a perfect match. It's a match made in Chinese socialist heaven. Yeah, I guess. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, very
1: yeah. interesting. Um, I mean, I agree. I mean, we we look at I, mean, I study rankings personally but beyond that uh it's 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 amazing how attuned uh so many people are here with like that sort of uh that sort of mm-hmm. paradigm whereas maybe in in the United States it's there's less of a, of a thinking about these kinds of things potentially mm-hmm. we still have I think quite a bit of that but not mm-hmm. ingrained into maybe every single sort of policy and we certainly wouldn't you know, put up a, a class rank where everyone can sort of see where your, you know, each student is ranked, stuff, mm-hmm. things like that. And I think that would be out of bounds for.
0: Well, and if you take the, the the sort of ranking competition phenomenon to the most sort of mundane level, the level of individuals and families, mm-hmm. um, China now, and certainly urban China, has a mass education system. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, high, sorry, mass higher education system. Sure. Higher education, I, I think, here in Beijing, uh, if you take the, the sort of officially resident Beijing population, uh, probably participation rates in higher education are in the range of, you know, 70s, 80 mm. percent. Right. It's like Korea. It's right. Like, like, like Japan. Highest in the world. higher. Urban areas. Um, and in the late 1990s, the central government. Took the decision to expand higher education, mm-hmm. um, having, for most of that the, the, the period, especially post Tiananmen, tried to mm-hmm. keep numbers down. Um, and obviously, you know, I think that has something to do with uh, a sense within the party that having too many students was not necessarily right. too many university students, not necessarily a good thing. Right. Right. Um, particularly if you weren't sure about. Capacity of the economy, the economy to absorb yeah, career and these kinds of things. But during the 1990s, you have the um, liberalisation of the labour market. Mm. Uh, by the mid-late 1990s, the rates of economic growth uh, were, were rapidly increasing. Although 1997, you have the East Asian financial mm. crisis, right. and it was at that point that the government took the decision to expand access to higher education, really very, in, in a sort of big bang. Mm-hmm. And um, it's quite clear that one of the main reasons for that decision was to um, unlock uh, family savings. Mm-hmm. An injection. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that happened during the 1990s was the the introduction of student fees of the higher education sector, sector, which happened in tandem with the liberalization of the labor market. Mm -hmm. Uh, So once higher education became a sort of fee paid, and ineffectively, therefore potentially a a consumption good, Mm -hmm. a marketized product, uh, you had the basis for rapid expansion Mm -hmm. uh, of higher education as a means of actually contributing to economic growth. And that was how the government saw it in the context of the East Asian financial crisis, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't yeah. think actually anyone certainly at the policy level expected the massification of higher education to happen on quite the scale right.
1: that it has happened. Right. Well, now it's the biggest sector in the world, unless mm-hmm. India passed it
0: while we were chatting or something. But yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> um, but that has contributed to the intense competitiveness. Of the education system, right the way down the line, yeah. right. So, in the early nineteen nineties, two percent of the relevant cohort, two to three percent, were entering college. Right now, I think over across the country as a whole, mm-hmm. it's mid twenties, yeah. you know, getting on for thirty percent. And as we said, in, in urban areas, much higher. Right, absolutely. Uh, and of course, everybody's competing uh, within the sector to get into right. the most prestigious. Uh, institutions, but what that means is that the, the competitiveness, which maybe in the past was restricted to the elite sector more concentrated in, uh, amongst a small, a relatively right. small elite, right. is now something that's spread to the whole of society. Mm. Right, uh, and along with that has developed uh, a, a huge shadow education system, right. which feeds that competitiveness. Sure, sure. Um, and which, again, absorbs huge amounts of people's savings. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in what I think we can say is, a, a at the very least, not a very productive map. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it also then, I mean, connected outside of China and connected to your, your final chapter, the international dimension, the spillover from people who are trying to get into the elite spaces of higher education, there's not enough space now. Mm. And so then they're spilling over to
0: Countries around the world and filling up classrooms and these and in the things. process, you know, this is of course fueling competitiveness in right. in, in higher education systems elsewhere. You could argue, sure. Um, um, but I mean, in, within Chinese society um, and in other societies that are similarly affected by mm. the same sort of competitiveness, right? Particularly here in East Asia, sure. Um, I mean, the costs involved, yeah. Are not just financial right. families, right. but of course, the psychological. Right, um, moving across children. the world, and well, well, yeah, but I mean, the, oh, the, OSA, the, OSA, the, the pressure, the pressure on you, yeah, right, the, the, that are involved in a system like this, yeah.
1: are, are absolutely huge, mm-hmm. especially with the in, in China specifically, one one child, yeah, where you sort of putting all your eggs into one baskets. Uh,
0: yes, take that phrase, but and, if you combine yeah. one-child policy this intensely competitive test-driven system uh, culture. Uh, One of the factors I think driving the intensity of competitiveness here and to some extent in other East Asian societies is the um, minimal nature of welfare provision. Mm. Which here in China to some extent has improved in the last 10 years but basically um, you can't afford as a Chinese citizen to, defend, to, to depend on uh, universal entitlements right. provided by the state, Right. because either there aren't any, or if they are, they're really not sufficient right. for a sort of dignified existence. Uh, and that's something that I think um, you know really drives the mm. educational competitiveness. Yeah. So, you know, families are investing in their well. What until recently sure. mostly singleton children, right? Uh, they have to. Yeah, I mean, this, this is. Uh, the phenomenon of competitiveness and, and uh, credentialism is sometimes seen as a sort of craze. Right. Sort of, you know, as if it's somehow irrational. Right. But it's perfectly rational yeah. in a society like this. Right. Yeah. Um, but to come back to the theme of control, that competitiveness is also, I think, quite an effective way of diverting energies amongst youth, mm. amongst families, amongst citizens that might otherwise be... Um, Focused on other areas. Right. Focusing it ins- or, or, or ensuring that it's focused primarily on the pursuit of competitive advantage.
1: Yeah. All the In- time and- investment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. I mean, we, this, we, we came through so many different healthcare, large-scale politics, international. There's so many different connections, I think, mm. for this book. I mean, who, who do you hope grabs
0: this book, who do you hope picks this up and reads it and checks it out? Well, one group of people I hope might read it, or if not the whole of it, but just, sure. you know, the the, the 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 salient bits, introduction mm. and conclusion, are in fact Western policymakers, because mm. I'm sick of picking up the paper uh, <laughs> and reading these these articles about how wonderful the you know, mm. Chinese education system and, uh, is and, and how we can, you know, we should, we... America, Britain, sure. Australia, wherever, right. should be learning from mm. China. Uh, when I was in Britain two months ago, uh, I read an article about Shanghai's maths textbooks being uh, the, the rights the model. to them being bought up by Heinemann, I think it was. Oh, this, interesting. This I haven't seen that. Yeah. So that they could be translated into English and thereby transform the educational prospects of a generation of English school children. Okay. Uh, I mean this is absolute rubbish. Yeah. Um, and I would hope that anyone who's read this book will understand why that's the case.
1: Okay. Fantastic. And uh, usually the last question we ask on, on uh, new books network, what are you working on next? What's the next project that you have next research that you're, or probably um,
0: you're looking into? Well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm doing two things. One is I'm working with uh, colleagues in India and Southeast mm. Asia on a report for unesco mm-hmm. on um, the state of education for peace sustainable development okay. and global citizenship in asia uh, uh, and that's that reports due to come out later this year it's, it's basically a sort of audit of school curricula across mm-hmm. asia uh, to try and work out to what extent they are addressing issues related to the united nations sustainable development goals okay to what extent they're promoting that agenda. Sure. Uh, how and why, basically, right. they, they are or are not promoting that agenda. So that's one thing. The, another thing is a project on um, the memory of war in contemporary okay. East Asia. that seems important.
1: I think the Nanjing uh, uh, anniversary is coming up, Nanjing Massacre
0: anniversary is coming yes. up. So. Yes, Well, this is my original interest in yeah. history, history education. Oh, I see, and, okay. And, and memory. Uh, and... So i'm I'm involved in again, this is an international project on that theme, and uh, I'm actually doing some research on Chinese representations of the comfort with mm. the the system of Japanese sex slavery yeah. during, during the second World war. Um, yeah, which is a yes,
1: that's important, a, a important. difficult but important yeah, issue. I think uh, so. Okay, well, uh i really enjoyed talking about your book here and we we'll look forward to these uh these other projects as they sort of roll out maybe we can we can talk in the future um but to everybody out there um go check out uh education and society in post Mao china uh by dr edward vickers and his co-author uh xiaodong and uh to everyone there hope you learned something